Recorded live from Winterfell Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is WPR, Westeros Public Radio. From the Princes of Dorne to the Kings in the North, we bring you the latest and greatest in Westeros. Eight days a week. Hey, small folk. Hello and welcome to another edition of WPR, Westeros Public Radio. As always, I am your host, Lynn the Jazzman Thunder, joined today, as I am every day, by your Lord of the Soundboard, John Bryant. How you doing, Jazzman? Doing pretty good. How you doing, John Bryant? I'm great. I'm excited to uh, talk some Game of Thrones. Oh, this is going to be a good episode, John Bryant. This is going to be a good episode. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Yeah. And this episode brought to you, as always, by donations from listeners like you and by a grant from the Hodor Foundation. Hodor. It's all right, Hodor. Jim, I will, I will never listen to that and not feel intensely sad about Hodor. Yeah, as soon as you hear his voice, it just grabs your heart and squeezes. Oh, <laughs> and it doesn't let go. It doesn't let go. John Bryant, I think, I think he knew what he was walking into. Do you? I do. Af- yeah, after rewatching it a couple times, I think he's known the whole time that that's what he was. His, it was kind of his purpose. That's right. I mean, he and he sacrificed. He's the bravest man in the Seven Kingdoms. By far. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. It's because of the Hodor Foundation that he will never be forgotten. That's right. Make your donations, folks. Let the Hodor Foundation live on. Let it hold the door open for future generations. Yeah, and another thing we got to talk about, because we hit it at the end of last episode, but we got to make sure and talk about it right at the front. We got a new email address. That's right. And I already forgot what it is. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's... Winterfellstudios at gmail.com. That sounds right. Sure. Yeah. Winterfellstudios at gmail.com. Why not? Yeah. Look on our Facebook page. It'll be posted there. Oh, we have a Facebook page, too. We no have way. a Facebook page. Check it out. Give it a like. <laughs> um, also, make sure and go to www.podbean.winterfellstudios.com to check out all of our latest episodes. That's right. Well, John Bryant, what do we have on the program today? Today, we're going to do top five betrayals Ooh, this was a tough list to make john bryant you know it, at first i thought it was gonna be really tough but then they just started coming to me oh that, that was my problem i had all these betrayals and to pick just five. Ooh, that was tough yeah we're also gonna get a piece on the wars of the roses it's gonna be a good one i think awesome and we're gonna have a nice discussion about aegon's conquest that's right and you know i'm i'm against it i don't think it was good john bryant you You are of a different opinion, but I think first we have to go to Westeros. Let's do it. (laughs) Come, bow before your king. Bow your shits. (laughs) It's a shame the throne is made of cocks. They'd have never got him off it. Okay, John Bryant. So, as the small folk know, we are coming up on the annual celebration of... Aegon Targaryen's conquest of the Seven Kingdoms. Aegon's landing. That's that's right. right. It's Aegon Day. And you know what? It is a day where traditionally the small folk get out and they remember Aegon's conquest very fondly. They remember it as unifying the Seven Kingdoms. But you know what, John Bryan? I think what gets lost in all that is the fact that there were people already here. Aegon did not discover Westeros. All right? (laughs) There have been people here for thousands of of years beforehand and he came in and he just wiped it all away he erased their history he erased their kingdoms he erased their cultures and frankly i think that they get forgotten in this i don't think it should be called Aegon day i think it should be called and on first men day i respectfully disagree when thunder well you know i'm not going to dispute that there were a lot of horrors that happened during Aegon's conquest but i think if you look at the big picture it was really all for the best. There were a lot of people in charge back then that did not have the small folks' best interests in mind whatsoever. And Aegon did a really good job of identifying and disabling those people and putting better people in those seats of power. I don't know, John Bryan. That sounds really patronizing to me. It sounds like you're saying that the first men, the Andals, were too stupid to rule themselves. They didn't know what they were doing. They needed someone, someone of pure quote-unquote blood to come in and show them how it's done. 
It's really patronizing, John Bryant. Well, he did have pure dragon's blood, so that's a point for you. But it wasn't just the Andals and the First Men that were ruling the Seven Kingdoms at the time. There were Ironborn in charge, dude. There were. Fucking Ironborn. Do you really want your king to be a descendant of the Ironborn? What's wrong with the Ironborn? That sounds kind of racist, John Bryant. You're giving me a look like, so what? They're the Ironborn, the Thunder. And they're really cool, John Bryant. And we're not talking about, like, nice Theon and you're a, you're a um, Ironborn kind of Ironborn. This was the family that was so bad, they were taken down, and then the fucking Greyjoys were put in charge because they look so much better than this family. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right, John Bryant, tell us about Aegon's conquest and why you think it should be remembered the way it is. Well, after the Doom of Valyrian, that was when the Valyrian Free City pretty much uh, imploded into the earth. Essos was in the midst of, midst of a huge power struggle. There was all these different great factions fighting for power to become the one great power there. I don't want to get into a ton of that because it really doesn't have a lot to do with Aegon's conquest. Oh, I see. You don't want to talk about the genocide of the Valyrians, but you're just fine talking about the genocide of the Andals and the First Men. All right, this fine. Is, this Go is, ahead. Go this on. This is a uh, hundred and something I'm years after the Doom of Valyria. And Aegon Targaryen was born on Dragonstone in the year 27 BC. That's before conquest. Now, Aegon had two siblings, an older sister, Versenya, who was a warrior princess. She, you know, was just as comfortable in a silk gown as she was in full steel plate. And then there was his younger sister, Rhaenys. Now, Rhaenys was formidable in her own right, but was definitely, she was, she was lighthearted and um, had a younger spirit than the other two Targaryens. The thing about Aegon and his sisters is uh, they were also his wives and queens. And that's because there was a long, rich history of Targaryens and other dragon lords marrying within their families to keep their dragon blood pure. Exactly. They're, they're very concerned with purity, John Bryant. Well, I mean, the dragon blood's what enables them to be able to ride and control dragons. So it's a pretty important thing. And this is the last family of the dragon lords. You know, there's, there's no other dragon lords out there. It's just these ones. They, they got to keep it pure. Can't be muddy in their blood with, you know, just regular folk. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> what, dude, All right. How else are they going to control dragons? It's their greatest asset. All right, go on. Um, when Aegon was a kid, he had this giant table built. It was 50 feet long and made out of one giant piece of wood. And it was carved in the shape of Westeros. Now, see, Essos was his homeland, technically. It's where the Valerian people had all come from. And he was born on Dragonstone, which is still part of Essos at the time. So that was kind of his homeland. But Westeros to him was this beautiful open country with just so much um, potential to be great. So he had this... John Brown, I think it was already great. It just wasn't his kind of great. I don't, I don't, I don't think it was that great, Lin Thunder. I think uh, there was a lot of problems in the Seven Kingdoms. The main thing about this table that you got to remember, you know, it's a perfect map of Westeros. It has all the lakes and rivers and mountain ranges and all the cities. But the one big difference is it had no borders painted on it. Exactly, because he's trying to erase the history and the peoples of Westeros from it. I think he wanted to unite the Seven Kingdoms under one ruler. That could put peace throughout the whole land. John Bryant, he's going to create a wasteland and call it peace. That's no peace. He, he didn't create a wasteland, Lin Thunder. We'll get to it. Now, at the time, the Seven Kingdoms are the North, the Reach, the Riverlands, Dorne, the Westerlands, the Vale, and the Stormlands. Each with their own rich history and people. That's, that's very true, Lin Thunder, and uh, they... I think that rich history is still valid today. But the reason that Aegon started really looking closely at Westeros, and I think what really got the ball rolling for him and made him decide that this was what he was going to do, was there was a huge feud brewing between two great kings in Westeros. Now, Argalon the Arrogant, king of the Stormlands, and Heron the Black, king of the Riverlands, were at each other's throat. Now, Heron the Black's also king of the Iron Islands, right? He's lord of the Iron Islands, yes. Okay. He's Ironborn. 
and his grandfather came over and basically through conquest took the riverlands it's the ironborn are the coolest people in westeros mm, okay you could say that you might say that they're a bunch of pillaging raping pirates but you know to each his own i don't think they're raping pillagers i think they're religious pariahs now argalon the arrogant king of the stormlands he's he know he needs some help and uh what better help than a guy with some dragons so he gets in touch with aegon targaryen and offers him his maiden daughter's hand and about half of his kingdom for Aegon to come with his dragons and army and come help him defeat Heron the Black. Now, as we've discussed, Aegon's already married. He's got two wives that he loves very much, both of them. And he politely declines this offer, but in return... It's because he's worried about purity, John Bryant. I think he's racist. Like I said, he's got to keep that dragon blood pure. In return, he offers the hand of Oris Baratheon. Oris Baratheon was a baseborn child, roughly the same age as Aegon, and one of his best friends. It was also rumored that Oris Baratheon's true father was Aegon's father, so they were half-brothers. But it was never really confirmed, but everyone's pretty sure they were half-brothers. So Aegon offers Oris Baratheon and asks for some more land and says to uh, Argalon the, the Arrogant, yeah, I'll... I'll Take my dragons over and help you fight. Um, you just got to marry marry your daughter to my buddy here. And uh, give me a little bit more land. Argon, Argalon does not like this offer. <laughs> he does not want to marry his one heir, his maiden daughter, to bastard board person. Even if he knew who Oris Baratheon's father was, I think at the time, the Targaryen name wasn't as important as it is now. You know what I mean? So he kind of took this as an insult, which... I don't think Aegon meant it as, you know, he had already, he had two wives. He didn't need a third. I think you're apologizing for Aegon. I think you're an Aegon apologist. Well, who's, who's going to apologize for Aragon? You know what he does in response to this offer? What does he do? He cuts off the freaking hands of Aegon's emissaries and sends them back to him. A cultural misunderstanding, John Bryan. Dude, emissaries, as we know throughout history, you're not supposed to fuck with emissaries. They're really, they're really hard to come by. You got to, you know, have this guy that you train in diplomacy and the art of negotiation and everything, and you trust him to go off to other kings with, and they're going to be, you know, treated with some respect. Argon, the arrogant dude, cuts this, cuts the emissary's hands off and sends it back to him. I just, that's, this is the kind of culture and rich history that you want to preserve? Uh, maybe he felt like he was under attack. I mean, Aegon's asking for almost all of his kingdom. And tell him he's got to marry his only heir, his only daughter, who he loves very dearly, to some no-name guy. I mean, I think Aegon's trying to strong-arm him, and he's trying to send a message saying, no, you need to respect Westeros. You can't just come over here and, and act like you own the place. Well, this is really the moment where I think Aegon makes his decision, and then makes his decision known across the realm. Uh, I'm going to read to you from uh, a book. I'm going to attempt to read from a book. (laughs) (laughs) After he gets his emissary's hands delivered back to him, Aegon meets up with his maesters and his small council and decides to send a little message out. From this day forth, there will be but one king in Westeros. Those who bend the knee to Aegon of House Targaryen will keep their lands and titles. Those who took up arms against him would be thrown down, humbled, and destroyed. Now, if we break this down in Thunder, he says those who bend the knee, they're going to retain their lands and titles and nothing bad's going to happen to them. But if you raise up against him, here's fair warning, you're going to be humbled. John Bryant, I mean, you say bend the knee like it doesn't mean anything. Well, of course it means something. It means you're no longer in charge of your own lands. It means you got to, I'm sure, pay taxes. It means a lot. I mean, come on. You're taking away someone's independence. It's all for the greater good, Lin Thunder. John Bryant, who's greater good? Everyone in Westeros. Mm, I, I, I disagree, John Bryant. You're acting like Aegon Targaryen's bringing civilization to these people? No, he's not. No, he's not. And that's just... I think that's patronizing. I think it's racist. And it deeply offends me. Now, the next big thing that happens is a very important event in history. It's Aegon landing at the Blackwater Rush. And when I say landing, I mean landing. 
he rode his dragon over, along with his sisters and their dragons. See, he comes over here with this superior technology and acts like it makes him better than everyone else. Uh, better than everyone else? What's the first thing he does? He erects a fort that's basically like a hunting cabin. He's living in Swaller here in this un, you know, undeveloped land and basically camping out in Westeros. Would you say he kind of like establishes a colony? Kind of. <laughs> you could say that. So yeah, he makes Aegon's Fort, which is basically just a bunch of earth and rock and wood put together to build a little fortress. That's not much, like I said, not much more than a cabin. Then he tells his sisters, okay, I need you to go get me some lands and some castles and some armies, which they do. Now, I want to stop here on the t um, our timeline and discuss it a little bit. I think this is very important. Aegon and his two sisters come to Westeros and, spoiler alert, conquer everything. But the important part to look at is it's not just Aegon. It's Aegon and his two sisters. Both of them play a very important role in uniting the Seven Kingdoms. There's three heads to the dragon, is what I'm saying. Now, if we look forward to next season of Game of Thrones, what are we seeing? Hopefully, what are we seeing? We're seeing a tar Targaryen come to Westeros to conquer it. People say sometimes history is cyclical, right? I think uh, Westeros history might be a little cyclical here, too. Yeah? Yeah. And like we just discussed, there's got to be three heads to the dragon. So who are the second and third heads? It's a great question, Lynn Thunder. One that we probably won't be able to answer here, answer here today. Maybe but it's just something important Maybe we'll have to, think to answer about. it in another program. Maybe we'll have to wait until and see what happens. It's hard to speculate. But I just think it's important to note that three dragons came to Westeros and conquered it. All right, so the next thing Aegon decides to do, you know, he sends his sisters out to get some, uh, some castles and some armies, which they do easily. Um, the first castle pretty much just gives up, no questions asked. One of the queens, I think it's uh, Visenya, shows up on a dragon, and they're like, okay, here, you can have it. It's all yours. See, that, that's the thing. <laughs> I disagree with that. I think that... It's a bloodless transfer of power, Linda. I think that they came in and... These Westerosi people, you know, unfamiliar with how rapacious and ravenous the Targaryens were, welcomed them with open arms, gave them guest right, and then were horribly betrayed. How were they betrayed? They weren't killed. They were, they kept their castles. They just swore allegiance to House Targaryen. They had to give up their independence, John Brandt. <sighs> Greater good, Lynn Thunder. Rhaenys goes off to another castle, and it's also a bloodless transfer, basically, uh, some cross uh, bowmen do loose a few arrows at a dragon and they get burnt. But after <laughs> that happens... Again, you're just glossing over the deaths of Westerosi people like they don't matter. These aren't just Westerosi people. They're soldiers in a battle and they knew what they were doing. They died for the ambition of the Targaryens. The greed and the avarice and the ambition of the Targaryens resulted in the deaths of thousands of Westerosi people, John Bryant. Can't gloss over that. Okay, we're going to gloss over it. Um, so they've got <laughs> Duskendale and Maidpool, and uh, all the dragon really did was just set a couple roofs on fire, and it was House Stokeworth. I mean, come on. Who cares about House Stokeworth? Maybe House Stokeworth cares about House Stokeworth, okay? Okay. Dude, these dragons are basically like huge deterrents to um, war. Once you see someone riding a dragon and know what it's capable of, you're not going to risk the lives of all your men in a stupid battle. You're going to bend the knee and do what's good for you. It's exactly. The Targaryens are threatening to kill everyone. So after Aegon gets his two castles, a lot of the major houses in Westeros start flocking towards his banners. They like Aegon Targaryen. And or they're terrified of him. No, they're terrified of the lords that they've already had, that they've been living with. Plus, I mean, he had fucking dragons. No one's going to... Exactly, they're terrified. You're terrified of something Join that's going to hurt you. If, you. if you're friends with the dragon guy, they're not going to hurt you. <laughs> it's all good. So then Aegon goes to Old Town, which is the biggest city in Westeros at this time. It's pretty much the capital of Westeros. And the Sept there coordinates him king of the Seven Kingdoms. Got enough support from uh, allies of other houses, and everyone likes him. So he... They're, they're crowning him the King of the Seven Kingdoms, the first King of the Seven Kingdoms. And this is the actual AC, um, BC, you know, switch point. This is the day 
where anything after that is after conquest and anything before it is before conquest. So based on when he was born, we know that he's 27 years old, which I think is a lot to accomplish by the time you're 27. Exactly. Killing kill that many people, that's quite an accomplishment, John. He, has, he hasn't killed anybody yet. Dude. Oh, it's just his dragons and his, his sisters, sisters on his dragons. orders. Okay. So the problem still remains that he is the, you know, he's the king of the seven kingdoms, but there's still seven divided kingdoms. So first things first is he's got to go to the two biggest threats. And he knows that that's Black Heron of Hall and Argalon the Arrogant at Storm's End. See, you call these things, you call these people threats, John Bryant. They're not threats. They are proud people who are unwilling to kowtow to a racist conqueror. In our next episode, we're going to talk a lot about Black Heron and how he treated his people. And we're going to see if you still take the same stance, Lin Thunder. You know, you see Aegon as a conquering warlord. I see Aegon Targaryen as a civilizer. All right, John Bryant. I guess we'll just have He's to a, agree to disagree. He's a beacon of civility and culture is what he is. So during Aegon's conquest, there are three major battles, and we'll get to those at later times. The next one will be the battle at Harrenhal against Heron the Black, one of the worst men that have ever stepped foot in Westeros. Except for Aegon Targaryen. We'll see, Lanthander. I think by the time we finish this discussion, multi-week discussion you will have changed your tune a little bit. All right. Well, John Bryant, I hope we've given the small folks something to think about. Yeah, you know. I think so. I mean, just Aegon, was a, he was here to do good. You say he's here to do good? I say he was there to do great evil. Evil that has been whitewashed over the past 300-some-odd years. We'll see about that. going to pull back the curtain. We'll see about it. All right, John Bryant. I think it's time to move on to our top five. I think that's a good idea. All right. Top five. This is Westeros Public Radio with Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. I am the god of shits and wine. And John Bryant. I vomited on a girl once in the middle of the act, not proud of it. Bringing you the latest and greatest from Westeros. The time is 6.35. Valyrian Standard. Okay, John Bryant, we got ourselves another top five list this week. And what is our list this week? This week it's top five betrayals. That's Backstabs, That's betrayals, right. double crosses, all the things that make Game of Thrones Game of Thrones. And John Bryant, I think the ultimate backstabber out of all of them is my favorite, your disfavorite. Peter Baelish. He is the king of the double cross, yes. So he, he features very prominently in my list, <laughs> oh, <God>. naturally. <laughs> you could fill a list with just Peter Baelish. I, you could, and I was tempted to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, Lin Thunder, you want to go ahead and tell us your number five? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, actually, I'm going to go first because uh, I think mine probably is going to be on your list, too, so I want to make sure and All say right. it first. Uh, the number one backstab, which is almost a literal backstab. Wait, this is your number one? I'm sorry, number five. This okay. is my number five. All right. The Night's Watch and Jon Snow. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. They stab him in the gut, but they betray him nonetheless. Is there any particular character whose betrayal was really heart-wrenching? You know, I can't decide if it's Ollie or Alistair Thorne. Because Ollie was, you know, Jon John St- Snow's steward kind of thing. And Jon Snow had, you know, taken him under his wing. But Thorne had trained Jon Snow, you know. You'd always kind of seen him as, like, the gruff coach that's never going to give you an inch. But at the end would you know have your back he 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 did, he was not that i don't think that was i think everyone saw alistair thorne betraying john snow coming from a mile away it was ollie sticking the knife in and twisting it that really hurt yeah and bowen marsh i think yeah. that was the other one of the other guys <laughs> yeah it was it was several guys but yeah that's my my number five is the the night's watch killing john snow luckily he came back to life yeah so no harm no foul <laughs> Except for, you know, Ollie and Alistair Thorne. Oh, yeah, they got home. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of a hard one fell for them. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. All right, what's your number five on Thunder? My number five. Wait, was that not on your list? No, it was not. Oh, man, I felt I... it was too too obvious, too easy. Okay, I thought that would totally be on your list. I went with Peter Baelish <laughs> and Ned Stark. Yeah. The backstab that really gets this whole rigmarole started. It really does. And I think uh, the Bastard Bard covered it in his song about Littlefinger. 
By the way, we need to start releasing some more tracks from the Bastard Bard. He's got a mixtape out there, and we just got to share it with the small folk. Does he? I haven't, I haven't heard any more tracks off of it yet. Oh, he, he's got some, I think. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, you know, Ned Stark goes into the throne room. He's going to arrest Cersei. He's thinking he's got the gold cloaks with him. And what happens? Old Peter Baelish. Old Peter Baelish stirring the pot, stepping over that line, grabbing Ned Stark, saying, hey, told you not to trust me. Yeah. After his men impale most of Ned Stark's uh, guard, and then just, yeah, he holds the knife to his throat. Yep. Fucking Peter Baelish. I hate that guy. That really set the tone for the rest of the series, I think. Really did. So that, that's my number five. It's a good number five. My number four also involves a Stark. You know, the Starks also feature prominently in my list. <laughs> they always <laughs> get betrayed. But number four is when Theon betrays Rob. He goes to his dad, and, and we've covered this before. He just wants his dad to love him. And instead of attacking the Lannisters in Lannisport the way he was going to do when Rob sent him out to talk to his dad, he instead takes the fleet and attacks the undefended north. Yeah, pretty bitch move. Big betrayal. Yeah. And really one that causes Rob to get killed. Yeah, and it doesn't do so, so great for Theon either. No, Theon didn't come out of that one ahead. No. In fact, he came out of that one with less than a head. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's my number four and a swinging moment for Theon. It really is. I mean, it sets him down a real bad road. Which, real, it, I real mean, all he had path. to do is be true, and things would have ended up so much better. But, you know, he wanted his dad to love him. He did. Yeah, you know, I think we've covered this before. I mean, I wonder if George R. R. Martin's father loves him. <laughs> you know, with his many terrible father characters that are in Game of Thrones, it, it's a good question. Yeah. All right, John Bryant, what's your number four? My number four betrayal is a really bad one. It, it's one that lingers. Okay. It was when Jamie Lannister told Tyrion that his young new wife many, many years ago was nothing more than a common whore. Oh, yeah. That, that one stung. So the story is, just for refresh your memory, when Tyrion was like 13 or 14 years old, him and his brother were out riding. And they see this girl being abused by two uh, other men. Now, Jamie chases him off. And Tyrion goes and tends to the girl and takes her back to an inn and makes sure she's fed and gives her some uh, ale and talks to her and stuff. and Comforts her. Comforts her. And long story short, they end up getting married. Tyrion's very happy. He never thought that he would find a girl that would love Tyrion for Tyrion and not just for his gold or his name. But then the betrayal happens. At the insistent, insistence of his father, Jamie tells Tyrion that it was all a lie, that he hired the two men that were attacking her and that she was just a whore that he had paid to make Tyrion a man, basically. That sticks with Tyrion for a long time. Oh, and clearly. It shapes his whole worldview. Not it makes him a very cynical person. It does. And not until the day of his sentencing does Tyrion actually learn the truth. And then it causes him to betray Jamie a little bit in a kind of weird lie way. He tells Jamie that he was the one that killed King Joffrey. So it was just, you know, it's bad times all around. And I think it might end up biting Jamie in the ass um, in the future someday. Yeah. Jamie, I feel like he's he's always caught up yeah. in, in other people's plots. I feel like despite his outward appearance, he's always... He's more or less trying to do the right thing most of the time. He is. And or what he believes is the right thing. Yeah, and it's just other people's influences usually that cause him to go down the wrong path. That's right. All right, John Bryant, what's your number three? My number three is when Peter Baelish betrays Sansa Stark by handing her over to the Boltons. I, I think this is a huge betrayal because Peter did essentially, he saved Sansa from King's Landing and he's been hiding her in the in the Vale and then just takes her north and pretty much drops her right in the lap of the biggest enemy, one of the biggest enemies to the Starks. And the ones who killed her family, basically. The ones who killed her family. And he's like, oh, by the way, you're going to marry this bastard kid, um, Ramsey Bolton. Don't know much about him. Haven't heard much about him, but he's probably a nice guy. 
He, he takes her out of the frying pan that is Joffrey and puts her right in the fire that is Ramsay Bolton. Exactly. Who's worse, Ramsay or Joffrey? Oh, I think it's got to be Ramsay. I mean, Joffrey's like a kid compared to Ramsay. Yeah, I think just Joffrey never had the chance to bloom into Ramsay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when, when Peter Baelish did that, that's when I was I said, enough's enough. This guy's a dick. What's he doing here? Can't He's be trusted. playing the Game of Thrones, John Brown. Can't be trusted. Oh, no, he cannot be trusted. No. Good, good number three. And actually, Peter Baelish also makes an appearance at number three on my list. <laughs> he is the king of the betrayers. He is. And this is one of those betrayals that really makes me like Peter Baelish. Because okay. I'll, I'll agree with you. The way he treats Sansa, I don't like that. It's, it's creepy. It's weird. And frankly, you know, it's not something you need to do to you know, a young 14-year-old girl. But this is one of those betrayals that really makes me like Peter Baelish and shows you that he's just an opportunist and he's not going to pull any punches with anyone. This is when he betrays the Lannisters and the Tyrells both to the High Sparrow. When he gives the High Sparrow that guy whore from his house who is able to show not only that Loras Tyrell is, is a sword swallower, but also that oh, Marjorie lies about it. Cause she knew about it because she'd seen him in bed together, and he knew about the birthmark on Loras Tyrell's thigh. And also, Peter Baelish tells the High Sparrow, hey, I've got the goods on Cersei Lannister hooking up with her brother. Man, so, okay, help me remember he this. He delivers both of them to the High Sparrow. Is there a scene where Peter actually in, in the High Sparrow are talking in this happens like i'm trying to i i thought the high this is when he, he's just talking kinda, to cersei and he says look i've got someone who might be able to help you get at the tyrells and kind of plants it in her head he's never that crude i guess he's he's, he's more subtle than that okay. he plants the idea in cersei's head and says oh by the way here's that guy who can back up this story plants the idea in her head to use the high sparrow against the tyrells Okay, so Peter doesn't actually deliver the man whore guy. Because I, I, rem- I seem to remember... He uses high- an intermediary, Cersei Lannister. He's a very subtle betrayer. Jeez, that's a good one. It is. That's a good one. I never even really made that connection until just now. I know, it shows you Peter Baelish is playing in a higher league he than really everyone else. He really is. Wow. Good one. That's, that's number three. That's and a good I, number he, three. He plays both sides against each other. It's Oh, it's fantastic. It shows you how good of a betrayer Peter Baelish really is. <laughs> All right, number two. Couldn't leave it off the list, even though I felt it was very, very obvious. Roose Bolton and Walder Frey at the Red Wedding. Yep. I don't think we need to go over it too much. No. But, uh, you know, it's just, gosh, that, that is a betrayal in and of itself that is just, ooh, I mean, it defines the series. I, I put it on the map. Yeah. People are like, I can't believe it. They just killed who I thought was the main character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again. Yeah. <laughs> In a horrible, bloody way. The bad guys win. What yep. the fuck? All at the hand of Tywin Lannister, too. That's right. Yeah. Tywin Lannister may be the only one in Westeros who could have possibly gone toe-to-toe with Peter Baelish. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. All right, John Bryant, you're number two. My number two, Joffrey pretty much betrays all the Starks in one foul swoop by cutting off the head of Ned Stark. Is It, it is a betrayal, I guess, but... It wasn't a calculated betrayal like everything else. No, it's just him being a dick. It was just him being a dick. But the idea was, it was supposed to be, Ned Stark would go up on the um, stage at the Great Sept of Baelor and say, look, uh, I was wrong. King Joffrey is the one true king. I'm going to renounce my title and lands, and I'm going to go join the Night's Watch. Which exactly. Which would have been kind of cool. He's going <laughs> to... Honorable, truthful Ned Stark will say that Joffrey's king. It'll put the whole rumor thing to rest, and then in exchange, he'll be allowed to live his life, and everyone can go home. And everyone wants this to happen. Cersei wants, Cersei to... wants, it, to ha- wants it to happen. Jamie wants it to happen. Uh, Ty- Tywin Lannister wants it to happen. Sansa, wants Sansa it... really wants it to happen. Varys wants it to happen. And then what does fucking Joffrey do? Goes against his word. And betrays Ned Stark, cuts off his head. Betrays everyone, really. Betrays everyone. What a dick. Yeah. I'm really glad he's dead. Me too. Yeah. Whenever I imagine that purple little face of his, I laugh. Exactly. He (laughs) got what he deserved. He really did. All right, John Bright. Your number one, your top 
betrayal in Game of Thrones. Now, this is probably the biggest betrayal in the history of Westeros. I would say definitively. And it's when Jamie Lannister stabs Mad King Ares in the back. A literal backstabbing. Okay. And we all know that it was a good thing that happened. You know, Mad King Ares was mad. He was a dick. We didn't like it. He was trying to kill everyone. He was going to burn the whole fucking place down. He was going to pull a Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> but Jamie throws aside his vows, his honor, all his oaths, and does the unthinkable. A knight of the king's guard, a knight who is sworn to take no lands, take no heirs, no wife, all to protect the king, then kills that king. It's almost a sacrifice. It really, I mean, yeah. Sacrifices his honor and his reputation. And and the king. Yeah. All at the same time, you're right. But yeah, it just, the scope of that, I mean, that's what ruins Jamie's name forever. No matter what we think of him. The rest of Westeros all has one image of Jamie Lannister, and that's him stabbing the king in the back. That's why they call him the Kingslayer. All right. My number one betrayal also involves the Lannisters. Okay. But this one didn't really have very many political ramifications. In fact, it's a, it's a minor betrayal that maybe only one person knows about in the series, really, when it comes right down to it. This is when Tyrion is escaping from King's Landing. And finds out that Shay and Tywin are sleeping together. Ooh. It's a gut punch for Tyrion. It you, really is. And, you know, Peter Dinklage played it perfectly. Yeah. Tyrion already knows that Tywin doesn't like him. He already knows that Tywin's kind of got it out for him. He's when, on his way to kill his father. Yeah, but when he finds out that Shay, who he thought loved him, who he loved... And was only trying to protect when he finds out that she testified against him. Not because she's scared for her life or anything, which is what he thought before. But because she's sleeping with his dad. That's 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 a personal betrayal right there, John Bryant. Yeah, and after Tywin had given Tyrion so, many, so much hard times about being with whores and stuff to see his dad do it. And do, do it to the one that he kind of loves. Yeah. Dude, that that whole thing is just like betrayal on betrayal on betrayal. Yeah. It's like, because first she betrays Tyrion, and then Tyrion betrays Jaime, and Jaime betrays Tyrion, and then Tyrion, and, and then Tywin betrays Tyrion, and then and Tyrion uh, betrays Jaime because Jaime kind of loves his dad. Yeah. He doesn't see eye to eye with him, but he still loves him. Varys um, betrays the Lannisters by freeing. Oh man, yeah. betrayal on betrayal on betrayal. But that that one that. That gut punch right there. Yeah. The Shay Tyrion betrayal is a rough one. It is. Yeah. Can I just say, though, I never really liked Shay. Me neither, frankly. Especially the TV version. Her, her funny talk, I did not like. What were your top five? My number five was uh, Jon Snow and the Night's Watch. Uh, my number four was uh, Tyrion lying to Jamie and Jamie lying to Tyrion. And my number three was uh, Joffrey betraying Ned Stark. My number two was Baelish betraying uh, Sansa Stark. And my number one was Jamie and the Mad King. All right. My top five. Number five, Peter Baelish betraying Ned Stark. Number four, Theon betraying Rob Stark. Number three, Peter Baelish making another appearance, betraying <laughs> both the Lannisters and the Tyrells to the High Sparrow. Number two, Bruce Bolton and the Red Wedding. And number one betrayal in the entire Game of Thrones, Shay, the whore betraying Tyrion's heart. The whore. The whore. Yeah, dude, this is why it's fun doing these lists because that whole Peter Baelish betraying the Tyrells and the Lannisters by using Cersei Lannister, like I never had really caught that. That's yeah. why it's fun to revisit these things. There's just so many angles that you are easily missed. Exactly. And you know, John Bryant, this is a very timely top five list because we're about to jump into Wars of the Roses and another big betrayal. Ooh, I'm right. excited. To England? To England. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. 
We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. That is the result of his majesty's government. Alright, Lynn Thunder. Is this was War of the Roses. Okay, small folk. When we left off last time, King Edward had just died at the age of about 40. Now, he had two children when he died. He had his son Edward and his son Richard, who were about 12 years old and 9 years old. Obviously, they're too young to take the throne. The age of royal majority at this time is, I believe, 15. So, none of them could legally take the throne yet because they're too young. This would turn out to be a bit of a problem. Now, we've got to step back right now, I think, and kind of remind people who we're talking about. The major players at this point are the king's widow, Elizabeth Woodville. And remember, she comes from this family that's seen as upstarts, you know, they're, they're lowborn, seen as greedy, hangers-on, uh, grasping for power. Remember, this is the woman that married King Edward in that secret ceremony with like five other people. This upset a lot of King Edward's establishment supporters. Remember, this feud between people like Warwick and Elizabeth Woodville and her family set off the whole chain of events and that betrayal by Warwick that we've covered in the last few episodes. And Queen Elizabeth had a lot of influence over the two children of King Edward because she's their mom. They love their mom. She loves them. And unfortunately, Queen Elizabeth and her family do not love the establishment supporters, quote-unquote, of King Edward, and vice versa. Now, at this point, I want to introduce two sort of new characters, William Hastings and Duke Richard. Now, we haven't talked about William of Hastings before, but he's actually been an important part of this story all along. William Hastings, or Lord Hastings, has actually been one of the biggest supporters of King Edward and his father since day one. He's a, he's a minor nobleman, but, you know, he's been a steadfast Yorkist supporter from the very beginning, going all the way back, like we said, to the first Duke of York, the guy who we started the story with. And in fact, he was seen as such a loyal supporter and such a competent person he was made a gentleman-in-waiting to King Edward when Edward was just a young boy. And they became... What's a gentleman-in-waiting? Oh, kind of like a servant, you know, like a, a, a member of the entourage. Okay. Yeah. And King Edward and William Hastings became very close friends. And in fact, they remained friends throughout King Edward's life. In fact, William Hastings was sometimes seen as King Edward's best friend. Now, William Hastings had been with Edward through every battle that King Edward had fought. In fact, sometimes he had been one of the sub-commanders under King Edward. So when King Edward's leading the center block of the army, oftentimes William Hastings is leading either the left block or the right block. And he had been on all the big battles we discussed so far. But he'd also been with Edward in the bad times. He had been with King Edward when he was betrayed by Warwick and was forced to flee in exile he had been one of the only people that King Edward took with him when he had to flee in the middle of the night and cross the sea over to Europe. He was a very loyal, very honorable man. And Edward rewarded him. He made him the captain of Calais. Remember, that's important because that basically puts him in charge of England's only standing army. He made him the constable of Nottingham, which is another important position because it puts him in charge of all the castles right in the middle of England. So whoever he sides with in any sort of conflict, you know, he's very important because he controls all the roads, basically. Nottingham is where Robin Hood's from. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> he's the master of mints, so he's in charge of all the coinage in the realm. And he's King Edward's right hand. By all accounts, he's very loyal, he's very honorable, and he does not like the Woodvilles. Would you compare this to like Ares and Tywin relationship kind of thing? I would compare it to King Robert and Ned Stark. Oh, so they're honorable. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, remember when we talked about King Edward, at the start of everything, when he's still young and fighting battles, he's like, he's like a cross between Renly Baratheon and Rob Stark. That's right. But remember, 
at the end, he's kind of ignoring his kingly duties. He's chasing women. He's getting drunk. He's getting fat. He sort of is, he's starting to look like Robert Baratheon at the end of his reign. And you know what? William Hastings is honorable, loyal. He's there to the bitter end as his right hand. I see him as Ned Stark. Now, the next character we need to introduce is someone that we have talked about, but not very much. This is Duke Richard, or Richard III. This is King Edward's younger brother. Now, remember, he had been with Edward when King Edward's other brother, Clarence, betrayed him with Warwick. He had been right there with William Hastings and King Edward when they had to flee in the middle of the night and go to Europe. So, he's also been with his older brother through thick and thin. But while we think of William Hastings as a Ned Stark type, I think we need to think about Richard III as a Peter Baelish type. That's not good. And let, let me tell you why. Let, let me read you some descriptions of him. This is from the historian Desmond Seward. Richard was obviously a man of many talents, charming and persuasive when it was necessary, a man who knew exactly how to win support. Despite his unimpressive physique and normally somewhat acid expression, he undoubtedly possessed what is nowadays called charisma. If he was ruthless and brutal, he was subtle too, and, as will be seen, he was wonderfully adept at concealing his real aims beneath a cloak of urbane sincerity. The historian William Hicks describes him like this. He was a master of the public statement and press conference, the open letter and manifesto, the inspired leak and innuendo, the personal appeal, and the restatement of accepted values. He understood contemporary psychology as we cannot, knew what attracted and repelled, and manipulated his audience accordingly. Thus he denounced his enemies as traitors, sorcerers, lechers, misers, and evil counselors. And someone who actually lived with Richard described him as someone who understood his ambition and deceit, and always suspected where his ambition and deceit might lead him. Here's what we know about Richard. King Edward is this very tall man, this giant of his times. Remember, he's about a foot taller than the average person. And he's someone who speaks very lovingly to people. He's someone who's very honest and forthright. You know, he'd much rather fight a battle than fight a political press conference. Richard, on the other hand, he's... He's short, he's small, he's, by all accounts, kind of ugly. And in fact, he's also a, a hunchback. He's got a withered arm. He's unimpressive physically. But he's also smart, he's subtle, and he knows how to work the back room. He knows politics. And I think that's Peter Baelish to a T. Sounds like it. Except for the Peter Baelish doesn't have a weird arm. That's true. Peter Baelish does not have a weird arm. Just to make things clear. Right. Now, when King Edward died, William Hastings and Richard knew that they were on thin ice. See, Queen Elizabeth and the Woodvilles could use their power over Edward's heirs to essentially strip away all the power from William and Richard and probably have them executed because they were a threat to the Woodvilles' power. Now, Richard saw this clearly, probably. William Hastings, maybe not so much. He probably understood that there was a threat. He understood that you know the game had changed now that King Edward's dead, but he didn't see it as starkly as Richard probably did. Now, Richard had been conversing with William Hastings and had convinced him that he was on the same side as William. He said, look, we're in this together. The Woodvilles don't like either of us. We got to work together. Now, Richard got word from one of his spies in London that Edward had died. See, Richard was hanging out in his northern estates. And he got word that Edward had died, and that his oldest son was traveling towards London for the funeral. Now, this is where Richard sets it all into motion. What he does is he gathers his men, and he intercepts the heir, and takes him prisoner for his safety, quote-unquote. He's doing it in, for his own best interests, you know. Oh, I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing it because I'm trying to protect you. This pissed off some people, especially people in London. And in fact, when Richard approached London with the heir in his custody, 
he almost was attacked. He almost had to fight a battle because a bunch of people had taken up arms and were ready to free the heir from Richard. They kind of saw Richard for what he was. But William Hastings, this honorable, trustworthy man, convinces everyone to stand down and to let Richard into the city with the heir in his custody. And we're told explicitly that this is because William Hastings had this reputation for honesty and loyalty and honor. Richard is using William Hastings already. Now this is where Richard gets especially devious. See, when he gets to London, he immediately releases the heir and professes his undying loyalty towards him, his, his love for him, he's going to support him, he's always going to be there for him. He's his uncle, he's going to take care of him, he's going to make sure that nothing bad happens to him. And he makes such a good show of it. Remember, he's, he's got that charisma. He's, he's the master of contemporary psychology. He does this in such a way that everyone believes him, even though he had just taken the air prisoner. <laughs> he wins everyone over, and with William Hastings' help again, his support, he gets himself n named Lord Protector of the Realm. Basically, he's in charge of the realm until the heir is old enough to take the throne. And what he does immediately as Lord Protector is he gets rid of all the Woodvilles who have power and replaces them with people who are loyal to him. It's obvious that Richard is laying the groundwork for a coup. He's trying to take the throne for himself. It's visible to everyone except William Hastings. He's blinded by his honor. Exactly. And this is how blind he was. See, Richard actually approached him at one point to kind of sound him out, to feel him out. Say, all right, what would you th think maybe if I was the king? <laughs> of course, he's not that, you know, blunt about it. He's very subtle, and William Hastings has no idea what he's actually asking him. But what seals his doom is he basically tells Richard in response to these, these questions, you know, th these investigations that... He swore an oath of loyalty to King Edward and his heirs, and he can't go back on it. He can't break his oath. He's got his honor. He's too honorable. Even though supporting the heirs might be his own doom, because if the Woodvilles have the king's ear, it might be the end of William Hastings. This response probably seals his doom. On the night of June 12th, 1483, William gets a message from one of his friends. His friend tells him about this terrible dream that he's had. His dream was that a boar, which was the personal sigil of Richard, this boar had slashed William's head with his tusks and killed him. And the friend urges William to flee London. In all likelihood, this friend knew about the, the planned coup and was trying to warn William through code, you know, this boar is going to kill you. The boar is Richard's personal sigil. He's trying to warn him about the coup in all likelihood. But he's trying to do it in code just in case it gets traced back to him. William's response is particularly stupid. He sent back a message saying that, Tell him it is plain witchcraft to believe in such dreams. If they were tokens of things to come, why thinketh he not that we might as likely make them true by our going? I liken this to that scene in season one where both Peter Baelish and Renly Baratheon kind of approach Ned Stark about, look, maybe you need to take the throne. You know that Cersei's got control of you know King Joffrey. She's going to do a bad job. You're in deep shit because your wife just took Tyrion as hostage. You're going to have to use some force, and Ned just turns them down. He says, no, what are you talking about? Blinded I'm, by honor. I'm honorable, whatever. And he finally makes that concession. All right, maybe. All right, Baelish. Maybe, maybe I'll use your gold cloaks. Maybe. Too late. It's too late. He doesn't get the warning. And Peter Baelish and Renly Baratheon are kind of speaking in code to him when they do it. This is where William Hastings lets his honor get in the way. The next morning, Richard sent a squire to William's house, inviting him to a council meeting. Now, the squire's job in reality is not to invite him to a council meeting, but to make sure he shows up to that council meeting. And we're told that on the way, 
to the council meeting. William meets a priest, and he starts talking to the priest, and the squire actually makes a little bit of a joke. The squire says, What, my lord? I pray you come. Wherefore talks you so long with that priest? You have no need of a priest yet. Ballsy. Yeah, don't know if it's actually true or not, but it's, <laughs> it's recorded in the history. Now, at this meeting was William and four other powerful men. Now, no, most of the people who would normally attend the council meetings were away in other business. So, right out of there, that should tip off William that something weird is going on here. Everyone who's normally there is not there. <laughs> it's just him and a few other people. At about 9 a.m., Richard joins the meeting. And he's apparently in a good mood, and he stays very, very briefly, maybe just a few minutes. He takes a look around, and he asks someone to send him strawberries from his garden, and then he leaves. Now, what's probably happening is that he's popped in, made sure that William Hastings is at the meeting. Everyone's there who's supposed to be there, and the strawberries from the garden is probably a code for, let's go ahead and do this. Yeah. At 10.30, he comes back to the meeting, and we're told that he's in a rage. Someone who was there describes him as coming back with a sour and angry countenance. He demanded to know the penalty for planning the destruction of me, being so near of blood to the king and protector of his royal realm. We're told that everyone's astonished. What's going on? Why are you coming back and doing all this stuff? Everyone wisely keeps their mouth shut because they know something's going on. Except for William Hastings who immediately stands up and answers that anyone who does such a thing ought to be punished as a traitor. (laughs) At this point, Richard lets loose. We're told that he says, See in what wise the sorceress, the queen, and others of her council, as Shore's wife with her affinity, have by their sorcery and witchcraft thus washed my body. And he rolls up his sleeve and shows that mangled arm. And he acts like it's because of sorcery. He says, Neither night nor day can I rest, drink nor eat, wherefore my blood by little and little decreaseth, my force faileth, my breath shorteneth, and all the parts of my body do above measure as you see fall away, which mischief verily proceedeth in me from that sorceress Elizabeth the Queen. Then he turns to Hastings and he says, You're in league with the Queen, aren't you? She's a sorceress. She's using this magic to slowly kill me. And here's the evidence. Look at my arm. Look at this. And he says, Hastings is in league with her. And he shouts, I arrest thee, traitor. Hastings responds, What, me, my lord? Yea, thou traitor. And then out from concealment bursts all these soldiers with arms, and they arrest him. Hastings still doesn't even know what's going on, but Richard, he doesn't even give him a moment to think. He tells him to finally send for a priest and confess his sins, and says, For by St. Paul I will not dine until I see thy head off. William is taken outside, made to kneel over a log, and is beheaded. And we're told by a contemporary chronicler that Thus fell Hastings, killed not by those enemies he had always feared, but by a friend whom he had never doubted. It's a pretty big act of betrayal. It is. Everyone knows that William died because he was too honorable, too thick, almost, to really see what was going on. This is one of the eulogies that was given for him later. Thus ended this honorable man, a good knight and a gentle of great authority with his prince, of living somewhat dissolute, plain and open to his enemy and secret to his friend, easy to beguile, as he that of good heart and courage forestudied no perils, a loving man and passing well beloved, very faithful and trusty enough, trusting too much was his destruction. Later on that day, Richard sends out a proclamation to all of London. He's already getting out in front of this. He's already, he's already spinning it. He's using his considerable powers of shaping public perception to denounce William. But we were told this about the proclamation that got sent out. 
Now was this proclamation made within two hours after Lord Hastings was beheaded, and it was so curiously indicted, and so written in parchment in a fair set hand, and therewith so large a process, that every child might perceive it was prepared beforehand. What he's saying is that this was clearly something that had been thought about and written out long before William Hastings had been beheaded. Premeditated. Exactly. Richard's coup to take over the throne of England is on. That's where we leave off today. Woo! That's some spicy words of the roses. Now tell me if that's not almost blow for blow season one. Sounds like it. I mean, George R. R. Martin ripping Game of Thrones from the pages of history. I love it. Uh, that, that's my favorite part about this is talking about it and just picking out all the similarities between Game of Thrones and the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, man. All right, Lynn Thunder. I think this was a good episode. It was. It was a bit long, but you know, small folks, sometimes they're a bit long. They're a bit long. It's probably going to be a little while before we get to our next one because I know uh, I'm going to be out of town next weekend and, uh, you know, we got busy schedules and everything. But hopefully this long episode will help quench the thirst. Tied you over a little bit. And as always, we thank you for supporting the podcast. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you learn a little bit about the people, places, culture, and history of Westeros. Gives you a better understanding of the world you're living in. That's right. Vela Magoras, Lynn Thunder. Vela Durares, John Brandt. Stay tuned. You're our talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. I found her surprisingly beautiful in a brutal, horrible, uncomfortable sort of way. <laughs>